I wasn't ready to stop singing yet. <laughs> so anyway, I do want to mention a prayer request that we need to keep in mind during the week. Um, elections are taking place in Turkey. Uh, and of course, because we have someone there, it may have ramifications for those serving in the country, uh, especially for Americans. So um, keep that in prayer. And then also some, some nutty stuff going up on in China, too, uh, where we have a missionary there uh, having voted out term limits for president there in China and also uh, heard through the grace find, I've got to get some more information on this, that I guess the Chinese government wants to, um, they want to write their own Bible, and that will become the official Bible, and no other Bibles will be allowed. So that's what's happening in the world. So we, there's a lot of prayer we need to offer up for those things. And then keep my wife in prayer uh, this coming week. We're going to the surgeon tomorrow. And she's probably going to have, uh, most likely, maybe by the end of the week, she'll be uh, have an operation. So just keep her in prayer, and I appreciate that very much. And uh, so let's uh, pray and look at the Word of God. We're in First Peter, chapter four. We're going to look at verse seven through eleven this morning. First Peter, chapter four, verse seven through eleven. Let's pray, Lord. This morning, I thank you for your tremendous kindness to us here. In the United States, we still have a large abundance of freedom to live out our faith, uh, to worship publicly, to carry our Bibles. And Lord, I pray that as uh, we would never take that for granted because we can wake up tomorrow and that could be all changed. So I just pray, Lord, that while we have peace, we would be not doing our own thing for ourselves, but we would be growing in godliness and holiness, preparing for the day that suffering may be at a higher level than we have ever experienced before. And Lord, that's we know what the very epistle of First Peter is. It's a book to get us ready for times that will be difficult. And um, so I pray, Lord, our faith would not be shaken, but we would be strong servants of the Lord during those times. And so I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless our time in the Word of God this morning. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's take our Bibles uh, and uh, let's look at First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. I want to remind you that right now this is the last section of First Peter. Uh, we went through the section on salvation, uh, the importance of all Christians having a good understanding, a grasp of their salvation in Jesus Christ. Secondly, uh, the, it focused on submission, the different ways Christians uh, are to submit, uh, coupled with really the characteristics and attitudes appropriate for proper submission that is pleasing to the Lord. Our great example of that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. And then now this third section that we've been in, it's the section on suffering. It's being pre ever prepared for any kind of trial or suffering that may come our way as believers. So 
this Lord's Day, we will see the purpose of suffering as a saint once we are equipped with the mind of Christ in our struggle and battle for the cause of righteousness, there are certain duties all believers must practice. So then the purpose of suffering as a saint is ultimately to bring glory to God. Now, how do we do that, to bring glory to God? In all our duties concerning our personal life and also our duties toward the community of believers. So look with me at the first part of 1 Peter where it says in verse number 7, the first part of that in verse 7, it says, the end of all things is near. Let me stop right there. Now, the term near really is used here in a perfect sense, a perfect verb. And when using a perfect tense, the writer is focusing on the completion of of the action, and views the results as certain and positive. So that means it refers to something that was once distant but now is near. What is closer than ever before? Well, the second coming of Christ, right? That's closer than ever before. The first coming of Christ, remember Christ already came as a man with a message preaching the message, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came doing mighty works, authenticating that he was from God and he was God. And then, of course, Jesus came in human appearance as the Messiah. But the first time, as the suffering servant, the second time, he's going to come as the exalted king, but he's also coming prepared to pass judgment. He's coming as a judge. So this statement, the end of all things is near, is really a reminder that time is not circular, but linear. We are heading somewhere. This present age is moving to an end. It is the hope of every Christian that Christ is coming again. That's our hope. It has been a fact of Scripture that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ remains a supreme motivator for consistent Christian living. If you haven't noticed, the theme of eschatological, the eschatological end has been a prominent subject in the Apostle Peter's writing in First and Second Peter. And we see, if you just go to chapter 1, Chapter 1, verse 4, if you notice, he talks there in verse 4 about our inheritance. It says in verse 4 of chapter 1, to obtain an inheritance, inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, where? Reserved in heaven for you. Right? So to get that, you have to be in heaven. So that's reserved. And then secondly, in verse 5 of chapter 1, salvation itself, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, all right? meaning that our salvation in its full completeness is not yet revealed, uh, but we will have our full redemption. We are sealed until the day of redemption. And then in, notice in verse number 7 of chapter 1, it talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, so that the proof of your faith being, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found as a result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, looking forward to that time. And then in verse number 9 of chapter 1, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So see, the full salvation that we will receive when we even receive resurrected bodies that will be connected to our our souls, our redeemed souls, will be something we are looking forward to. And then in verse number 17 in chapter 1, notice, it says, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. All right, getting to the final judgment in chapter where the Lord will judge and then What we saw last week in chapter 4, notice verse number 5, Christ as the judge. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's what he's ready to do. He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints. But the next thing on his agenda would be to come and judge. That's what he's going to do, and we're looking forward to that. So, And then, of course, in chapter 5, First Peter, verse number 10, it says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So we are going to be, we're called to that already, but the full sense of it is still yet in the future. So you can see from these passages that imminence is stressed. Jesus is coming soon. Even though it has been 2,000 years since the Apostle Peter penned these words, the Scripture, even though God delays, he delays for one specific reason, and he, that's recorded in 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, remember, where it tells us in verse 8 and 9, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the very reason the Lord is delaying his coming is for people to be saved, for people to hear the gospel. So everyone who needs to be saved is not yet saved. Maybe you're one of them this morning. You're not here, but you're not yet saved, right? So God's delaying his program for those people, and he will bring all those who the Father offered to the Son to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He will do that. So until then, we must be ready. We must press on to live for the Lord. It's like it says in Matthew 24, 24, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming as at an hour when you do not think he will. So living each day in light of the Lord's return should most certainly impact our present Christian life. Today in Scripture, we will learn that We Christians have urgent duties in view of the end of all things. We're not to sit back and just wait. We are are not to sit back at all. We're actually to stand up, get in the game, and do what you're supposed to be doing. Our, Our duties are split up into two places in this passage, personal duties 
and community duties. So today, let's glean from our passage that we have the three marks. There's three marks of, now notice how this is worded here, three marks of a responsibly strong Christian community or church in view of the end, right? The purpose of, of suffering as a saint is there's three marks found here in this passage. And here's the first mark right here. The first mark is that this community of believers, this church, our church, should take the duties of prayer seriously, very seriously. Notice in chapter 4, verse number 7, it says this, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Right now, before we even look at what that mark is, there's two things that are prerequisites before we get to the actual intended purpose. And the first prerequisite is to keep a cool head. It says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. Another way of saying that is keep clear-minded, which points us to someone who keeps his head despite dangers, despite fears, despite worries, especially during times of trial and suffering. Uh, Thinking clearly leads to good judgments. And thinking clearly during times of pressure also leads to good judgments. When people lose their head, the Bible's calling us to keep your head. Keep your head so you do not get swayed any in the, in the wrong direction. And so as believers living uh, on this sin-cursed planet, should have, we should have a better understanding of life uh, than a non-believer. We know what the plan of God is. We know what God is doing right now in the world, and we know where it's all heading. We, all, we know that. So while we're here, we're to keep a clear head, uh, And then secondly, it says in verse number 7, we are to uh, have a sober spirit, right? A sober spirit. Now, that also means a balanced mind or someone who is self-controlled. This is the opposite of what we saw in the passages that have gone before us. It's the opposite of drunkenness or being controlled by outside substances, substances or outside influences Discipline and self-control is in view here in order to exercise moderation. So what is, what, what is it that constitutes a spiritually sane, disciplined person? Well, they see things in their proper order. Uh, they see things in their proper proportions. They see what things are important and what things are not. They are not swept away by sudden and passing enthusiasm or any wind of doctrine that is sweeping through. They are not prone to unbalanced fanaticism. And also they see the affairs of this life in light of eternity. It's heading somewhere. And of course, the bottom line is that in all they do, they give God his proper place. God is always first in someone who has a sound mind now, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it said there, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober, 
in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so that spiritual sobriety will be important for two specific purposes. The one found in 1 Peter 5, 8 is going to be for the purpose of resisting the enemy. We didn't get there yet. But the one in this passage, in verse number 7, it says this, the last part of the passage, for the purpose of prayer, we are to have a sound mind. So that's the intended purpose for us to be growing in our knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. So we are always aware of what God is doing and what God requires of us, and we are not influenced in our mind by anything that we put into our body or outside our body, but we are actually stable in our thinking so we can think the right thoughts, so we can think biblically. So why for the purpose of prayer? When we come to prayer, how are we praying? When the church first began, there were several means of grace that were laid down in order for a body of believers to grow strong and to grow stable and to grow mature. They included learning the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and corporate prayers, not just private prayers, but the gathering together of people in order to pray. So, so, So the bottom line would be the purpose is that we come together with a clear mind of what God is doing, and we pray specifically about the things that are before us. So Christians, having believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, have a new standing before God because of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. It is a standing that we never had before to be able to approach God at any time, any place, anywhere. We weren't able to do that. So once we repented and believed, then we were granted the forgiveness of our sins. That was removed, and then all what the Lord did for us on the cross came to be our uh, part of our inheritance, and now we are able to approach God in prayer. So prayer flows from the certainty that our creaturely helplessness and our logical conviction that God alone can enable us and help us to do things. It's like what it says in Psalms, whom do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. It's this desire that we know that God is a God who hears our prayers and answers us. So what kind of prayers are we to pray? Well, in our passage, uh, it suggests that our prayers are to be in the church meeting, in, uh, and are to be particular in our minds, that it's, it's when we gather the prayers that contribute to the building up of the personal relationship that we have in Jesus Christ and the spiritual maturity that we are to obtain by the Spirit of God. We are to be praying for our sanctification. In the book of Acts, the practice of corporate prayer became a significant part of worship in which these new believers were eagerly desiring to participate in uh, prayer together. And so we see that 
It says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to actually uh, the definite articles go before these words, meaning that the prayers, the public uh, meeting together with prayer. So Friday nights are, are times that we can publicly meet together and pray for all kinds of things and bring them before the Lord uh, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. on Friday nights. So if a church body lags in this, the common purpose of prayer, where the spiritual lifeline of communication with God, if that's broken, the forces of opposition will weaken and eventually destroy a body. We, so prayer is, is, the, is where we get our power from, from the Lord, and get our uh, stability from, from the Lord because we lift the, our prayers up to him and we, are, we expect our Lord to answer our prayers, of course, according to his will. And we know that prayer, when we offer a prayer, prayer is not all, always, God's not going to always give our, our, the prayer request could mean that you offer, God may say no. That's a, that is an answer. Sometimes he says Go. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes he says, not now. So we discern those things as we lift things up to the Lord in prayer. So regular, continual prayer shows where one's priorities and where one's congregation's priorities and concerns and passions really are. If, if nobody wants to pray, then whatever we're doing, I don't know what we're doing. We're doing it in the flesh, we're doing it for other reasons, but we're not really doing it for the end result, and that's to bring glory to God. Now, what is prayer? Just some things about it. Prayer is simply talking with God. It's the interaction of the soul with God, not in contemplation or meditation, but in direct address to him. We're talking to the Lord. Also, prayer may be oral, it may be mental, it may be occasional or constant. It could be a sudden crying or an uh, or formal and planned prayer. We, when you read through Scripture, you find that people beseeched the Lord. They poured out their soul before the Lord. They prayed and cried to heaven before the Lord. They sought God and making supplications day and night before the Lord. They drew near to God before the Lord. They, they bowed their knees before the Lord. See, prayer was something that uh, was very important in the life of believers all the way from the beginning. And then also prayer is uh, presupposed, it presupposes a belief in the personality of God, his ability, willingness to hold communication with us, with his children. And of course, when he does that, we know that God hears us and he will answer us. We pray that he answers us according to his will. And then also our prayer are to be acceptable to God, they must be sincere and they must be offered in faith. Ask and ye shall receive, the word of God tells us. So here's the bottom line. We are to have a continuous inner channel of communication with God. Prayer is worship to the Lord in which he deserves our adoration coupled with a thankful heart. And not many would deny that prayer is important. But practically, many are atheists when, they, when it comes to prayer. Because when 
prayer times come around, they're not there. When they live their life, their daily life, they don't pray very much, or they pray only when they feel like they're in trouble or they're in danger. That's, those are not the, the times that believers should be praying. Those are one of the times, but we should be praying about everything all the time, right? About what's going on in our daily life. Every day, we should be doing that. So we should definitely seek God on normal days about everything. If you are part of God's family, I urge you to become men and women, and yes, boys and girls in prayer. Learn to walk in the Spirit, to lift up your hearts continually to Him in prayer, practicing the presence of God in your daily life is what this is what, what we're called to do, especially in light of times that are coming may be hard before us, harder than we uh, would imagine or think. And so we need to be depending on God no matter what happens and trust him in all things. That leads me to a, a second mark, uh, and that is the mark of uh, the, they, this congregation that, that is sober and strong, all right, responsibly strong is a church with the, with the end in view. The second mark is they practice the principles of love fervently. That word is stressed in our passage. If you notice in ver- verse number 8 of chapter 4, there's two things that accompany community relations. Number one, what we must show as a congregation. And what, what should we show? We need to show accepting love. We must show accepting love. Notice what it says in verse 8. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. That's the first part of the verse, keep fervent. This is the third time in Peter, that Peter brings up this crowning virtue of all other virtues. And, of course, that would be love. In chapter 1, verse 22, he said, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So, see, if we are able to love people in this way, we would have really no need to be exhorted to love in this manner, uh, in, in a fervent way. For the most part, the love that we did have for others that we thought was love was really driven by selfishness and superstition and social disorders and personal excesses and sensuality flowing out of an evil and a sinful heart. But since we have come into the family of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have a new capacity to love people like God loves us. We learn our love from God. For it says in our passage, above all, that means it is a very important thing in the community of believers. It is to be a love that is fervent. And it should be likened to a runner who stretches out or a horse at full gallop where the the muscles are taut and strenuous and strained, straining every ounce of, of energy to get where it's going. That means that our love must be energetic, exerting ourselves to the fullest extent. 
It doesn't look like Christian love from this passage is too sentimental. Uh, It seems like here it's deliberate. It's a deliberate effort that demands a person's mental and spiritual energy. Now, why are we to love with such urgency? Well, it does tell us in the passage why. It says, because love, in verse number 8, covers a multitude of sins. Now, that's an interesting phrase there in, in our Bible. It is not that love is blind or condones or hushes up sin before God and men. That's not what the intention is. Love does confront sin in order to protect character and help someone walk in holiness. Here the reference is not to sins in their Godward relation, but to sins and failure in our human relations. This section of Scripture speaks of relationships between believers and believers. In other words, when we truly love one another, we forgive people's offenses and sins against us, right? That's what it means there. That's how you cover it. It's, it's by our truly forgiving people. You know, we, we can say, I forgive you, and then we still have it's going on what's going on in our heart, right? In our heart, we haven't forgiven you. In our words, we may have forgiven you, but not in our heart. The Bible is saying here, no, this fervent love is the kind of love that it forgives from the heart. That means I have nothing against you. No matter what you've done against me, I actually forgive you because I know how much God has forgiven me. And so when I truly love a person, when we truly love people in Christ, we will forgive or cover people's offenses and sins against us. I mean, if you, all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter, and you find out, wow, that love is really important. It's kind. It's it's. Uh, it's not jealous. It doesn't brag. Uh, it's not arrogant. It's it's not. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It does not provoke. It does not take into account wrong suffered. All those things listed in those passages of scripture tell us very clearly how important it is to love properly within the congregation. So love keeps everything together and is void of bitterness and anger and indifference and a refusal in the heart to forgive. It refuses to deliberately expose sins, the sins it encounters to the eye of all. It prefers to refrain from a, and, and, and of course discourages all need to talk about those sins with other people. Yes, we are to use Matthew chapter 18. But if you notice the loving steps in Matthew chapter 18, if you find someone who is sinning, go tell them, right? And then what do you do when you tell them? If they say, you're right, I'm, I'm wrong, I need to clear this up, it's over. Nobody ever knows about it. It's not until that last step where they're digging in and it's affecting the congregation and the congregation is not dealing with the sin that becomes dangerous and becomes cancerous in the body. So when someone deliberately exposes sin in order to humiliate or injure someone, that's hate. That's all that is, is hate. Only when Christians become mean and ugly do they favor 
the devil by dragging each other's failings out into the public arena and hanging out all the dirty laundry that uh, someone could have. So we must remember that we are all weak and failing, right? We have all done things and sins, sinned in certain ways that we are not proud of, we're ashamed of, and we don't want to be caught in any kind of habitual sin practice. But Christians are sensitive to their sins, and they're also sensitive to the sins of other people, and they realize sometimes what sin does to people, and we want to rescue them from that effect and one way to do it is by a, a love that covers a multitude. Notice what it says, multitude of sins. This is not just a few things. This is all through your life. We, we can't be having this, this little list of things we have offenses in our heart. We can't have that list. That little black book needs to go into the garbage heap, needs to go into the, into the fire. We cannot keep anything in our heart against people. Or, you know what, we'll never do anything God wants us to do. That's what prevents us from doing things, is that we can't go forward because we have this stuff going on inside of us. So we must remember that we're all weak and failing, and if we love a person, it is easy to forgive. Love makes patience easy. When we love this way, we can accept others' faults, others' foolishness, and even endure their unkindness. We can do that. So how precious and broad is God's fervent love toward us? God forgives, and he doesn't bring it up against us again. That's the kind of forgiveness he has. You think of back to Abraham. Abraham was really the founder of Israel, tagged the friend of God, yet one time was a worshiper of idols. Moses was a murderer, but later became one of God's chosen and delivered Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Rahab was a harlot who believed God by hiding the spies. Later, she is rescued and found among the members of the Hall of Fame in chapter 11 of Hebrews. So even Peter here, who writes this epistle, openly denied the Lord Jesus Christ and cursed him, only to return and become God's choicest spokesman for the infant church. So see, only forgiveness can produce people like that. So we must all be careful that we do not put perfectionistic expectations on each other. The direction of the Christian life is not perfection, but a life of growing in holiness and godliness. Again, here's a passage of Scripture from Proverbs, and it says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Notice, though, hatred has a result, and so does love. Hatred stirs things. It stirs the pot, makes things more confusing, and less to have any kind of reconciliation. But love when it covers, when it forgives, it forgives all transgressions. There's nothing that Christian love cannot forgive, nothing. And so, therefore, when, though, when we take on this attitude, we are actually 
honoring the Lord in that way, and we are not holding offenses uh, against anyone. Um, so this is really just not formal forgiveness, but this is accepting people. This is not holding other people's offenses against them, despite their weaknesses, despite their spiritual immaturity, despite their shortcomings. So mark this down. Fervent love is the most important key that knocks down all kinds of walls between Christians and then allows us to minister to each other and with each other in the body of Christ to get God's work done and to do that unhindered. So that's what the Lord calls us to do during these days, and that is something we need to learn and practice. Notice it's the word practice there that is important. We are to practice these things that will make a body healthy. And then, of course, that leads to another thing, and it's this, that we must shoulder hospitality. Look at verse number 9. It says, be hospitable hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but remember, back then, there was no hotels, all right? So all Christians had to make sure their homes were open, ready for hospitality. But you know what? The church body must be ready to provide a meal, lodging, and the necessary items to traveling Christian preachers and teachers and missionaries, along with traveling family and friends. In other words, a network of housing for suitably sponsored travelers. This is not just for everybody, but this is for a particular group, depending on what you can do. Because hospitality could become a very exasperating chore. There is an attitude that must accompany all our hospitality. And what should it be? Without complaint. All right, and that really means really without outward complaint or under the breath murmuring and grumbling. Why is that? Because there's always the chance that guests may overstay their welcome and abuse their welcome. That means hospitality must be shouldered cheerfully. That's got to be the attitude. Because when we do that, we are shouldering uh, the burdens that may come with being hospitable, but we are also displaying the character of Christ. That's what we're doing. So that is the second mark of a believer. There is a third one this morning, and it's this. The third mark is that of a mark of a responsibly strong church in view of the end. They take their duties to use their spiritual gifts to serve the body as a paramount necessity. In verse 10 and 11 of our passage, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, we, we, in other words, we must share our God-given gifts with the church. They're not just for us, but the use of spiritual gifts is to serve one another. Faithfulness in the stewardship of God-given gifts, not just the elders and deacons, but church Ministries depend on God's distribution of spiritual gifts rather than natural abilities. See, God bestows these gifts 
and the measure and the manner in which they are to be used. They are to be used to serve others and to build up the body of Christ. So that's what we are to do. We are to share our God-given gifts. And the passage, it says in verse number 10, it says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So here we are. It says in that passage very clearly, each one of us has been given at conversion a spiritual gift. And so therefore, we need to know what that gift is, and then we need to use it in the body. We have no privilege to sit down on our own. Now, uh, the concept there in the text is that of it really the theological concept of spiritual gifts comes from several Greek words but primarily from charisma which means an endowment of God's grace something given out of grace and not a debt it's a spiritual working of God actually it's a gift of God God gives these gifts to the church and uh, those gifts are to be used by the church. Now, there are, ser- there are several scriptural observations that come concerning spiritual gifts, and the first one would be each believer has a spiritual gift and possibly more than one. Also, spiritual gifts are received at the moment of conversion. All right. Now, although all gifts are needed in the church... Some are more important than others. However, gifts do not confer status, but they confer responsibility. This is the responsible behavior I need to have by the use of my gifts in the church. Also, uh, some gifts are permanently given, whereas others are apparently were temporary in the church. Um, also that the believer controls the use of his or her, her gifts and is therefore the one responsible for the use or the non-use of that gift. All right? And then we also see that these spiritual, uh, these, they're, they're like natural abilities. Spiritual gifts can be developed and matured uh, like natural abilities. And then spiritual gifts are not abilities to work with some particular age group or some particular place of service, that's not necessarily what they are. But I just want to list those things. And there's some other ones I could mention uh, to you. But uh, those are some of the things that go along with our observing spiritual gifts. Now, in our scripture this morning, there are two categories of gifts. There are the speaking gifts, Right in verse number 11, where it says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Right, That's the first thing. And of course, some of these speaking gifts are uh, prophecy or preaching, proclaiming scripture, teaching as exhortation, knowledge, and wisdom. And then, of course, there are also serving gifts. These are the two categories of gift. Verse 11, it says, Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So service, giving, leading, mercy, faith, helps, all of those are 
the gifts that are mentioned there in our passage in verse number 10 and 11, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Now, there's a, something I don't want you to miss under this one, and it's this. It's the very fact that we, we must depend on God for the use of these gifts. And if we just go back for a minute, uh, if you see in verse number 11, it says that if anybody has the gift of speaking in any of those areas, how are they to do it? This is how. They are to speak the utterances of God. All right, now, the speak, that means that the speaker must speak as one who utters God's word. Now, this can be taken as a warning for the speaker not to give their own ideas or their own opinions as opposed to the divine word. In, f- in fact, the speaker's words must be the scripture. One must depend on the revelation of God to speak. That becomes the most important thing here. The speaker must speak the divine word, and he must do it with weight and dignity and respect that should accompany uh, speaking on behalf of God. We can come up here, and uh, there can be a lot of things we can say that are good, uh, but you know what? They're not, they're not profitable like the Word of God. So, so it's better not to waste your time. Let's get right into the text and see what it says so we can actually be living it out. All right, so the Word of God is also translated here, oracles or sayings or message, actually all those originating from God himself. They're God-breathed. And, of course, they are used of laws in the Old Testament. They are used of promises. They are used of inspired utterances. They are used in salvation history. And so, in other words, that if I'm going to speak, if you're going to speak on behalf of God, make sure it's God's word. That's the point. A lot of some, just because somebody, God gave you, just because you have the gift of gab, doesn't mean that you speak God's word. A lot of people talk a lot, too much, but they say nothing. You have to get your information from the word of God and give it out, right? I mean, I always tell people, the Bible's a pretty big book, isn't it? It's going to take our whole life to, to learn a part of this book. Even if we're diligent at it, we need to learn the Bible. And as we learn the Bible, then we can give it out to people and we can know what it says. And we also can know when someone's saying something that's completely wrong. And we have that discernment that comes from Scripture. So we must depend, if we have a speaking gift, on the revelation of God's Word in order to speak correctly in a way that honors the Lord. But the next thing it says... In our text is this, that 
we must depend on God for how we use these gifts. And of course, the next one is in the service gift. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In other words, that God may give a different measure of strength to one person and a, a greater or a lesser measure, measure to someone else. We cannot make that comparison. Only God does that. But I tell you what, if you, are, if you have a spiritual gift, God will give you the strength to use that gift. He will, he, that strength comes with it. To what extent, that is up to him. But if I'm going to continue on in the Christian faith, and if I'm going to continue to serve and use my gift, Believe me, I'm tired all the time. Aren't you? Don't you feel tired? But you know what? When God gives you that strength, you, this is what you know you're supposed to do. You get up and do it. And, and he energizes you to do the work he's called you to do, right? And then when you hit the pillow at night, you actually sleep at night because you're, 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 you're done, right? And you need that rejuve, rejuvenation of the body to get ready for the next day where God will supply that strength. Now, some of you may remember the little ditty I used when preaching on spiritual gifts written by Mel Mel Johnson called Getting It Together. If your spiritual gift is shelved or has not been regularly used or has not been used at all, maybe you don't even know what it is yet, well, that puts the local church at a disadvantage Let's make sure that, that that really doesn't happen to us. Let's make sure that we know what it is and that we start serving and using the gift to build up the body of Christ because that's what it's for. That's why we're to use it. Now, if you're not using it, then uh, that, of course, uh, could be a problem. And I, I pray it wouldn't remain a problem. But the ditty went something like this. Fred, somebody... Thomas, everybody, Peter, anybody, and Joe, nobody, were neighbors. But they were, they were not like you and me. They were odd, odd people and, and most difficult to understand. The way they lived was a shame. All four belonged to the same church, but you would not have enjoyed worshiping with them. Everybody went fishing on Sunday or stayed home to visit with his friends, anybody wanted to worship but was afraid somebody would speak to him. So guess who went to church? Nobody. Nobody was the only decent one of the four. Nobody did the visitation. Nobody worked on the church building. Once you needed a Sunday school teacher and everyone thought anybody would do it and anybody thought somebody would do it and you know who did it, that's exactly right, nobody. And it happened that a fifth neighbor, an unbeliever, moved into the area. Everybody thought somebody should try to win him for Christ. Anybody could have made the effort, but you probably know who finally won him. Nobody. Now, the moral of the story is each of us is personally responsible for doing God's work. We all do this by using our spiritual gifts regularly in our own local church body. So let's not assume somebody, everybody, or anybody is doing it because you know what will happen? 
it will end up being done, you guessed it, by nobody, right? So we are responsible. God has assigned to every Christian a function in the body of Christ. There are no exceptions, no exceptions to this. Every member has a function within the body that God has assigned for him or her to fulfill. So that is the desire of God for a congregation that is growing to be strong in the light of the Lord's coming, right? That's the point. And then, of course, what is the end purpose of all this? Let's look at verse number 11, and we'll close this morning. What is the end purpose? Why are Christians to fervently pray, practice unfailing, accepting love, and be sure to keep in use their spiritual gift? Why? In order to give glory to God in all things. Look at verse 11. It says, the end of the verse, in the middle of the verse, so that, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So see, that would be the end of all things. That would be the purpose of our living, that we would definitely give glory to God. Now, what are the purposes of these things in spiritual gift? Well, there's threefold. To give God glory for the common good of the body, and for the edification of the church. Now, you notice that no gifts are for personal use. It's always for not me, but us, right? It's for the body. So if you don't use it, actually, I'm, I'm, I need your gift for you to function in your gift. You need my gift, right? All of our gifts are different, but God has given you at least one of them. Use them. Now, why would he bring glory to God? Why is that so important here? It's for this reason, because God should be seen at work through his church as we use our gifts, right? He, he needs to be seen through us so that in, in Christ, God gets all the glory. It's not the praise of the speakers and the servers. There are no persons that should be idolized no matter how much influence or exposure they are given by God. There are to be no personality cults in God's church. It doesn't really matter. All the glory must go to God. So we are to show, yes, affection and real gratitude to those who are faithfully serving. But all the credit, all the recognition, all the glory and honor must go to God. At the end, we must praise God. That person didn't do it. This person didn't do it. God did it through those people, right? That's the point. And when God gets the glory and he is honored and he is lifted up, that's when at those times the gospel is definitely ready to go out to people and people are going to hear it, and some, the seed will fall on good ground, and some will fall on fertile ground, and some will get saved and bear fruit. 
So these are the three marks of a responsibly strong church in view of the end. They take the duties of prayer seriously. They practice the principles of love fervently. And they use their spiritual gifts to serve the body and to bring glory to God as a paramount necessity. It must be done. And so those are the instructions this morning from God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for listening to us and hearing us. I praise you, Lord, for your guidance that you give us in the word of God. I pray, Lord, that each one of these things we can think about ourselves and to examine ourselves to see if we are actually doing them. Because, Lord, we want to be strong in the Lord. We want you to be glorified. We want your work to go forward. And, Lord, these are the ways that they, it does go forward. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the giftedness that we need to carry on all the work that you've given us here. And I pray, Lord, that we would use our gifts to edify and build up the church, that we would be serious about coming before you and seeking your face in prayer. And I pray, Lord, that we would also be fervently loving one another uh, so there's no, nothing going on in our heart that's going to prevent us from serving with someone else who's a believer. And I pray, Lord, that you take all these things, work them into our lives and our congregation, and do it for the glory and the honor of your great name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.